We are glad to make all of our Jcast Network podcasts free for our listeners. However, they are not free to produce and host. Please consider making a donation to Jcast Network to help support our work by visiting jcastnetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. You are listening to Pop Torah with Rabbi Iznopf and Olitsky, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Welcome to Pop Torah, the podcast where we look at pop culture from a Jewish perspective and look at Judaism through the lens of pop culture. As always, we are your hosts. I am Rabbi Michael Knopf. And I am Rabbi Jesse Olitsky. And today we are talking about the new HBO series based on the video game of the same name, The Last of Us, starring Pedro Pascal. Jesse, you want to tell us a little bit about The Last of Us? Sure. As Mike said, based on a hit, critically acclaimed video game that I never played, uh, but it is about uh, worlds in a zombie apocalypse. I'm a big fan of zombie apocalypse or post-apocalyptic worlds. I was a big fan of The Walking Dead, big fan of World War Z, I Am Legend. Um, this is very interesting. It introduces a theory that this uh, zombie pandemic was actually caused by fungus, uh, uh, by a, a fungus mutation growing in our brains. Uh, but the show really uh, only introduces us to Outbreak Day and really focuses on the world 20 years into this global pandemic uh, and introduces us to different characters along the way, how the world works, to fascism of the government, to revolution, to people who are living in isolation. And the story really is about Joel, played by uh, Pedro Pascal, as Michael said, and he is uh, really in charge of taking Ellie along. Ellie is played uh, brilliantly by Bella Ramsey. I actually think she steals the show for me. And she is a 14-year-old who uh, was bit by by one of these uh, clickers, I believe they call themselves. Well, there, there are different versions of the zombies. One version of them is a clicker. A clicker right? Uh-huh. Uh, and bit, bit, bit by one of these zombies and uh, didn't mutate, didn't become one. And so they think she may be the key to a remedy uh, to turning the tide and uh, ending this uh, zombie pandemic. That's the show in a nutshell. Uh, and every episode, they encounter different people along the way. We are recording this full spoilers ahead, uh, five episodes into the first season. We've only seen the first five so far. And Which is about we halfway will, through about halfway the through. first season. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're here to let you know our thoughts. Mike, what did you think? Okay, I, I'm loving this show so far. I also uh, have been a fan of the genre of, uh, of zombie apocalypse stories and shows uh, for a, a while. Um, uh, I've not played this video game. My, my video game, uh, playing basically stopped with Nintendo GameCube back in the early two thousands. Um, so I, I missed the boat on, uh, this particular, uh, game. Uh, but, uh, but now I understand that it was a uh, very popular and critically acclaimed and that the show does really interesting things with the source material, both, uh, in honoring it and in veering from it, um, which is also kind of interesting to, to think about and talk about. Uh, we often talk about this. Uh, about how uh, adaptations are are in a, in a sense a form of midrash, um, and so that's that's really interesting. But I I think that the show is great. I think first of all, uh, uh, you know, it does something different with with zombie apocalypses uh, than what we have seen before. Um, so uh, as opposed to say The Walking Dead, um, which uh, you know famously, at least in the uh, maybe six seasons that I saw of The Walking Dead. Um, I, I stopped watching after a while because it felt like it was getting too monotonous and not particularly going anywhere, um, which is an, an additional argument for having, you know, a sort of clear scope of story that you want to tell uh, and, uh, and and knowing what your end game is of the story. And, and I feel like uh, The Walking Dead and its related properties um, uh, sort of fell victim to being somewhat aimless. Um, but I but I but I like that show, but different than The Walking Dead, uh, uh, where uh, we sort of famously uh, are not told uh, and no one seems to know what had caused the zombie uh, uh, apocalypse uh, in that story. Um, right. just Andrew Lincoln's character, Rick, uh, wakes up in a hospital bed. We're not quite sure how long, uh, how much time has passed. 
Uh, right. But he wakes up in this hospital bed and the world is deserted and there are zombies. But not, not much time has passed, right? You know, maybe a year uh, that he's been in, in a coma um, in, in that in that story. So it's, we're, we're you know, this story picks up not long after the zombie apocalypse. Some of the related properties, the walking, there's now a whole Walking Dead universe. Fear the Walking Dead. Um, the world uh, right, and so Fear the Walking Dead starts you know, off with, with the, Negan you know, and Maggie right. and, and, and um, Rick. So Fear and, the Walking Dead starts with the outbreak. So you see how the outbreak, you know, kind of first begins, but you never really see, you know, how, like exactly why it happens, um, as opposed to say, uh, I am legend, uh, where we know that the that the zombie outbreak happens because of a um, a an unintended consequence of a miracle cure for cancer. In this case, uh, the zombie outbreak uh, happens. We're told pretty early on uh, in the uh, prologue to the first episode. We're essentially told that this is going to be um, an outbreak of a fungus mutation um, that happens. Uh, um, it really uh, because of global warming um, uh, that's sort of anticipated in the 1960s. Uh, the the fungus that we're talking about is, I think, called cordyceps, um, which I think is a real kind of fungus that exists and does um, uh, some of these things with uh, with with uh, with insects um, that uh, kind of controls their behavior and controls their character. Um, and so that's what happens in in this world too. Different also than you know, say, I am Legend or uh, 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 The Walking Dead other kinds of zombie uh and by, uh, by the way just to, just to chime in that that is true right this this idea of the cordyceps is true that um that it, it's that the fungus can get into plants and grain it's very easy to eat uh infected rye and when you do so you have psychotic episodes and there's historical background that suggests that the salem witch trials were caused by people eating infected rye with cordyceps mm. oh so, so that's that... so crazy <laughs> Right. And that actually brings up a whole other element. This is uh, not something that we talked about beforehand, but it just occurs to me that there's a famous uh, story from Rabbi Nachman of Bratislav um, of, um, of, of uh, uh, a king who has a, an advisor, uh, who, like a mystic who, who predicts that there's uh, tainted produce, tainted crops, tainted wheat uh, right. within the kingdom. And that, uh, and that, uh, when people eat it, they're going to go insane. Uh, but there, uh, there, there's enough of the of not tainted produce um to uh, at least save the king and maybe the the vizier too depending on how the story is told um and uh, the the vizier uh, advises um uh, uh that they also that, the, that he and the king also eat the tainted grain and go insane uh, along with everybody else because if they don't then they're going to look like the then they're the, then being sane in a world where everybody is insane they'll be the insane ones. So what they decide to do is to uh, eat the tainted produce, but put signs on their foreheads before they do so that they remember that they um, have actually gone insane and that will help them uh, remember to stay sane in an insane world. It's really kind of uh, crazy, um, crazy kind of story and, and anticipates, you know, I think recognizes that this is a phenomenon, uh, maybe not to this extreme, but a phenomenon that that happens. Um, but it, but in you know in it but one one of the other things that this story does different is it sets the uh, narrative really uh, a long time after the world you know goes insane um, and, uh, and and you know kind of sees what the world would look like twenty years down the line and not a year or two years down the line uh, from the when the original outbreak happens. That is, I think, an a, a, an interesting take, and it it kind of uh, shows um, you know what what might happen down further down the line um when a cataclysmic event like that happens like all apocalypses and there are apocalypses uh in the uh, uh the hebrew bible itself there are many other apocalypses that were uh, written contemporaneous with some of the texts of the hebrew bible but didn't make it in to the canonized hebrew bible there are some in the in the uh, christian scriptures too um the the purpose of apocalyptic literature um is to um provide uh um uh, insight and um and an observation about current reality in um you know in sort of a fantastical setting um uh you know to to also say you know what uh what what is what is what is our what is the human condition like at its core when you remove all of the structures of uh of, of society that we that we believe in and have in place what 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 who are we at our at our essence what is going on right now in our world um that um 
uh, that that is already cataclysmic, but we may not be seeing it quite that way. Um, and and what does that do to the nature of our societies and the nature of our relationships? And at, and at its core, this this uh, show so far to me has really been all about relationships, right? So Absolutely. It's, it's, yeah. So it's following, you know, it's it's a uh, in some ways like a buddy road trip uh, show with uh, with with uh, with Joel and Ellie, um, which is also you know this is the second time Pedro Pascal is doing that. Uh, he's also the Mandalorian with uh, with with Grogu, Baby Yoda. Um, so we, we might need to find some uh, uh, range for Pedro Pascal to find uh, in his career. I'm going to talk to his agent, um, but he's obviously great in that and great in this. Um, oh, that's interesting. That that's my big critique that that I, I think he he sort of lacks range in the character that, that he's portraying. Uh, his voice sounds the same. But I can close my eyes and he sounds like the Mandalorian. He's not changing uh, his voice or his affect at, at all with either character. Yeah, you know, it's 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 interesting. I mean, the, the characters are different, but the the situation that they're in, at least so far, is kind of similar. Um, so I can see that. Um, and and it is right. It is. Uh, he's He's not necessarily stepping fully out of his comfort zone uh with this role but it is a good role and it is a good story um but it's a it's sort of a buddy road trip movie for them um it is you see um uh, the third episode in particular we're going to talk about this of course um is is an incredible love story after the end of the world um between uh two characters one of the most tender love stories i think i've ever seen on tv um really amazing um uh, uh, uh storytelling there uh the latest episode um uh, tells the story of two brothers an older brother and younger brother sam and, and henry um who are you know kind of fighting to survive uh, after the end of the world so you know, in a lot of ways and the the, the show begins uh, as a relationship story between joel and his daughter and his brother um uh, a, a, which which obviously is going to be a, a dynamic that continues coming up and uh, Joel's going to reunite with his brother uh, uh, in, in episode six, it looks like. Um, so we're going to see more of that. So, um, so it, you know, this is an apocalyptic show. It's a zombie apocalypse, but really it's about, you know, who we are as people, what our societies look like, even when they're under strain, how we respond to fear and how we interact with one another. Yeah, I think you're spot on that the essence of the show is about relationships. Right, it's relationships in the backdrop of a zombie pandemic, uh, and in some ways, you know, I, I hate to make the comparison to the COVID nineteen pandemic, uh, the the two and a half years that we experienced, um, but if that really caused us to rethink relationships, caused us to rethink the importance of interpersonal relationships, of in person communication, of just being present, of being able to hug and hold and touch another person um, of seeing another's face and lips and smile. Um, and, and, and the essence of this show, it's about relationships. You, you were spot on the relationship between Frank and Bill, uh, Murray Bartlett and, and Nick Offerman's characters. Um, the, these two uh, gay men, one, uh, a sort of crazy survivalist with the bunker uh, and the other um, a, a wanderer that he finds and the life that they live together um, where um, they end up dying uh, by, by by suicide um, but at, at the end of their lives because one has a terminal illness uh, and uh, they realize that their life is full together uh, right, they 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 were frustrated at times. It was really the the, the most beautiful example of love because they fought and, and they complained and they disagreed at, about things, but they were very happy living in their plots. You know, sometimes you know Frank wanted to paint or he wanted to invite friends over, and that's how he was introduced to Tess and and, and to Joel. to Joel. Um, but it was it was really beautiful uh, the way that their relationship they didn't interact with with zombies at all uh in, right. in, in their 20 years of the the zombie pandemic they they created their barracks and they sort of lived there and it was about love the relationship between henry and sam what an older brother would do to save a younger brother's life he was a rat right he was an informant uh, for Fedra, why? Because it was the only way to get the leukemia medicine he needed to 
uh, make his younger brother survive. I've, and I think about that a lot. What will we as parents do uh, to save another person? Sort of like, a, I think one of the most underrated Denzel movies is John Q, where where he's uh, uh, the, the father of a child who needs a transplant. Uh, and mm-hmm, he's mm-hmm. too far along on the transplant list, too far below. Uh, and so he he takes everybody in the hospital hostage because, you know, a, a parent will do crazy things to save their child's life. Uh, and, and we see that. I actually think those relationships are more interesting than the Ellie-Joel relationship. Although I think what's most fascinating about the Ellie-Joel relationship is how all these things about Joel mourning his daughter, Sarah, uh, he sort of suppressed, uh, and it's coming up and playing out within each episode. Also, I would say it's really spot on what Torah itself is, right? Torah is also about this journey. Uh, mm-hmm. we, we have two separate journeys. We, we, we have the, the prologue journey of the, the Genesis narrative, and then everything that comes after that, Exodus and, and wandering through through the Midbar, through the wilderness. Mm-hmm. But it's all about a journey, um, not about the destination. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. I I don't know what happens in the game. I don't know if they ever reach Wyoming. I don't know if Ellie actually has the cure. I'm not sure. Uh, but it, the show is about the relationships that 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 happen and the faith people have in each other on those journeys. Joel finally begrudgingly but agrees to take Ellie, uh, and that's his purpose. You know, I, I think back to uh, not to Avram hearing. God's voice and going on his Lechacha journey. But I think to Sarai, who didn't hear God's voice, but had faith in her partnership and her love for Avram and said, I'm going to go on this journey with you because we're partners and I trust you and I will do whatever you need me to do. Uh, right. Henry is saying, I will do whatever my brother needs me to do. Um, you, you know, uh, uh, Bill and Frank are saying, I'm going to do whatever you need me to do. And then you have Kathleen, who I got to say, you know. Kathleen being the the head of the uh, resistance that took over Kansas City from uh, Fedro, which is the sort of fascist version of the American government that uh, that takes power after the after the initial outbreak. Right. We we see her in in, an episode. Uh, four and five. Uh, apparently, she was not a part of the game. She's an original character for the show, played brilliantly by Melanie Linsky. Uh, if you know her from Yellow Jackets, which is also a great show, um, but uh, she is just out for blood, right? How this uh, rebel group becomes just as bad as Fedra itself. The the revolution becomes fascist themselves. And why is she out for blood? Why is she out for revenge? Because that is how she is mourning the loss of her own brother. Right, so it's right. all about relationships, all about grief and love and loss and yearning for something better and, and hope for for a future. Well, right. So I think that there's a few pieces of that that I that that I'd like to uh you know pull out. You know, the first is the, the nature of relationships, I think, that that's explored in the show is um, the way in which um, we have to be uh, vulnerable. We have to take risks in order to to be in relationship with one another and, and, and how we make those risks and how we know whether those risks are worth it, right? So, um, so uh, Nick Offerman's uh, character, by the way, talk about uh, um, range. You know, I love Nick Offerman. Yeah. I think he's been great in a lot of things. Um, and you, you know, he, uh, w- the previews of what that episode were going to be, I thought that Nick Offerman was going to be very Nick Offerman, you know, being this sort of like uh, macho survivalist kind of type, uh, like Ron Swanson. Uh, and he was that, but then just so much more um, uh, in the presence of that. And and you see, you know, Justin using that as a as a microcosm, right? He doesn't want to uh, let uh, I, I forget which one. He's Bill, and the other and and uh, his husband is Henry. Um, I mean, his his um, husband is Frank. 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 So uh, he, you know, he doesn't want to let Frank in, right? Frank uh, uh, is a, you know, a stray, uh, uninfected that gets uh, caught in one of uh, Bill's traps that he had made to to capture uh, infected people that are wandering onto his property. 
Uh, and he, you know, wants to just, you know, send him off and, and let him go, right? Let him live, but but send him away um, and not take him in, provide him food or anything like that. He said, if I, you know, if I uh, give you food, right, you're going to go tell every, you know, Tom, Dick and Harry that you, uh, that you encounter along the way that like that I'm here and that I have food to give and that everybody's going to come banging on my door. And I don't want that. Um, Frank, by the way, played, uh, I don't want to overlook him either, by, by Murray Bartlett, who, who was uh, played Armand uh, in season one of the White Lotus. Notice, uh, mm. it was the, the, oh, the star yes. of the first season. Oh. You don't recognize him because of his great Yes, appearance. right. Oh, wow. That's so, I didn't recognize that. Thank you for pointing that out. So great in that and great in this. Um, but, but you know, what, what happens there is that, you know, uh, Bill has this, this inkling that, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to like open the door a little bit for, for relationships. And when he does that, the love that's able to uh, develop and blossom, he takes a risk by doing it. It's a real risk he does, he takes. Um, but but by doing it, his his world opens up in, in such a, a, a significant, powerful way. Um, even also because though he was it, a closeted gay man. Right, right. right? It's, it's clear right. that he had never been intimate with another man before. Um, right. but, but but I guess uh, Frank's gaydar went, went off quite, yeah, quite quickly. Right. Um, and and um, so... It's amazing that only in a zombie apocalypse did he feel comfortable being his true self as well. Right. Yeah. Um, so we we might want to revisit that in in a, in a moment, but um, you know, and that that happens a little bit later in the episode where uh where uh Frank uh convinces Bill to uh open up into a relationship with with Joel and Tess. Right. They start having garden parties together, which is really sweet in a way. Um, and, and you know, and uh, so. That's that I think is going to be, you know, why uh, Joel and Ellie's relationship is is so important, because after Joel's daughter is lost, Joel has really, in, in a lot of ways, closed himself off. He develops a relationship with Tess. His relationship is is a loving relationship with Tess, uh, but uh, but is but is also very pragmatic. Um, and uh, and and maybe his relationship with Ellie is kind of pragmatic too. There may be pragmatic dimension to all of our relationships, but still, uh, you know, he's he's uh, slowly got to open himself up to um, to that vulnerability in relationship with Ellie, and that vulnerability also includes the the possibility, the real possibility, especially in this world, that you're going to let somebody in, have an attachment to them, and then lose them. So I think that the that the um, the shadow of our own pandemic, which um, uh, reminded us uh, that all of our interactions with one another are in some way dangerous, um, uh, and we have to uh, uh, set aside those fears, be they irrational or rational about one another, um, in order to be in relationship with with one another or figure out how we're going to be in relationship with one another while also uh, uh you know mitigating the risk um that that's something that i think a lot of us didn't necessarily think that much about until our own pandemic um and this show set in the wake of a pandemic um is really kind of exploring that uh in in a in a really significant way and and i think that you're pointing to torah about this is is really is really true the torah points that out uh, all the time. It's present in the relationship between the Jewish people and God, right? So, uh, you know, we just read in the in, in the weekly Torah reading uh, the story of the crossing of the Sea of Reeds, um, and rabbinic tradition points out the fear that was present in the Israelites about actually going into the, you know, going into the miracle, going into the walls of water. It, it is a risk, right? They have to trust that God, you know, uh, isn't just like, you know, tricking them or temporarily, you know, holding the walls of water up, but it's not going to hold as long as they need to make it through. Um, and so, uh, so in the Torah's telling, they go through anyway, right? Recognizing that a miracle is happening, but not knowing how long it's going to hold. In the rabbinic telling of it, it you know, it's only the bravery of one person that shows the rest of the Israelites that you know it, that that it's that it's possible to to trust in the relationship with God and that they won't be let down in in that relationship. But there's always that aspect. Um, I think what the Torah is pointing out is that in all of our relationships, be they with one another or with God, um, there's they're they're all about uh, risk. Yeah. Um, going back to to uh, Frank and Bill's uh, relationship for for a moment, um, and our own experience with with a pandemic, uh, be it a very different pandemic than, than one with zombies and, and fungi. But I, I um, 
you know, found it fascinating. I, by uh, the way, can I just pause you there about fungi? Um, yeah. I, I'm surprised that Ellie hasn't pulled out a fungi, a fungi uh, joke. pun it, from her joke book, but that's the, maybe the, that's the, the, the scarecrow joke actually made me laugh out loud. Outstanding oh. <laughs> in his fields. Um, uh, yeah, and I also uh, I also really love the uh, the diarrhea is hereditary joke. It runs okay. in your genes. Yeah. Um, uh, sorry, I have to refocus <laughs> after talking about diarrhea. Um, the relationship between Bill and, and Frank. Um, I think it was spot on when we talk about our own pandemic, how Bill was very content not being around people and Frank really needed to be around people. Uh, and, and I think the way our institutions shifted, uh, that there were some that were very content being at home uh, and maybe because they had other people at their home uh, and there were some who were living alone uh, and they yearned for interpersonal connection, be it virtually or in person. Uh, and we had to understand how every person was different. And then going back to what we said about Bill really coming out as a gay man, um, and it took a zombie apocalypse for that to happen, that in this world, this post-apocalyptic world, uh, it was not about putting on a, a version of yourself that was inauthentic. It was like, listen, if this is what the world is going to be, then why waste time being anything other than our most authentic selves? And I think that's really what he he was, and that's what he did. Uh, and I think that that's something that we've all learned from the, the COVID pandemic was we reprioritize how we presented ourselves. Mm. Uh, part of it is like we don't dress the same way, right? Uh, I don't know about you, Mike, but I don't wear a coat and tie as much as I, I used to because it's not about dressing to to present yourself in a certain way, but it's about being who you truly are and people seeing you for who you are, not how you dress. It's about how we prioritize our time and where I live in New Jersey, a suburb of Manhattan, people are commuting less into the mm -hmm. city. And even those who commute every day, they're not going on that 6 a.m. train and they're not coming back at seven o'clock at night. They're reshifting priorities to be with family more. And I think that that is what the pandemic showed us is the importance of relationships and how we need to prioritize that before anything else. Right. I think, uh, first of all, I, I will say that, you know, our, our uh, listeners aren't watching the video here, but uh, I, as I have been throughout uh, the entire pandemic, I'm um, wearing a full uh, um, uh, uh, tuxedo and tails and, and top hat with a monocle. Um, that's just, that's my authentic self. And I'm bringing it to this conversation uh, as I do with every conversation. That's, but, but to your point, that's, that's just how I want to be. Not because I, I want, you know, uh, validation from outside. That's how I feel on the inside. I'm like Mr. Peanut on the inside. So, um, <laughs> Uh, but I, but I think you know you're you're right. I mean you know uh, one of the phenomena that has happened in the pandemic era is the Great Resignation, um, and 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 a lot of that is because people have realized, listen, um, uh, life is short and unpredictable, um, and and uh, it it's especially if I'm privileged enough to be able to make those choices, um, I, I don't uh, want to be spending whatever time that I have. Um, uh, doing something that is not true to who I am and, and is not making me uh, uh, happy and, and fulfilled. Um, so, so I think that that, you know, what, what, you know, again, like an apocalyptic, a post-apocalyptic show can show us um, is, you know, just, just how true that can be. You know, I think that fear is also a piece of that. Right. So uh, it are presumably one of the reasons that Bill, you know, had never come out uh, as gay before is because of uh, his his fear of of social judgment. I, I suspect he doesn't, you know, run. He didn't run in circles uh, where uh, where where homosexuality uh, was was very widely accepted and that if he was going to be, you know, his authentic Bill, um, uh, he would get rejected by, you know, by his community. Um, and uh, and and so we we often um, uh, hide pieces of ourselves out of fear of uh, of rejection or or not belonging, um, and, uh, and and so that I think is is really 
important here. I think that fear and grief are, are such powerful. Uh, the show shows how fear and grief are such powerful motivators. And I think that um, that is true in, in the relationship dimension that we're talking about. And it's also true in in sort of our social organizations. And, and that's something that this show um, uh, really explores in, in really meaningful ways. You know, so it's set into the, the, the outbreak day is set in 2003, which it's you know not going to be lost on uh, most viewers um, was sort of at the height of America's war on terror um, against uh, uh, after 9-11. Um, and the beginning of America's uh, invasion of Iraq, which happened in the spring of, of 2003. Um, uh, Jesse and I, we, we happened to be uh, together uh, uh, watching that invasion on TV. And, and yeah. you know, and, and, and I think that that's... An, yeah, and I think that that's really intentional here because because uh, what it's reminding us um, is you know how much of a a fear response uh, to the events of 9-11, in some ways legitimate fears uh, and in some ways irrational fears, drove our reactions um, and 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 uh, and enabled us um, to, uh, to to cede authority, to cede power uh, to a government that you know maybe. Uh, was uh, you know had um, uh, had sort of altruistic intent in in pr prosecuting you know the the war on terror and then the war in Iraq. I think that's an arguable point uh, about uh, you know how um, um, how genuine or disingenuous uh, their uh, response was, but it did produce um, a sort of new uh, sort of authoritarian bent. On uh, on on the American government that may have always been present, uh, but uh, but that um, uh, that was you know really visible in in new ways, right? So after nine eleven, we get the Patriot Act, we get uh, um, you know a sort of uh, widespread discourse um, uh, to stifle dissent about the Iraq War. I remember the climate on at Columbia's campus around the Iraq War when it when it started, right? And uh, and and uh, and you had it in Congress, right, where like you couldn't have French fries anymore. Right, the the, the uh, House of Representatives uh, cafeteria uh, had to call them freedom fries because France wouldn't join in America's coalition, and so you yeah. see that here that the that the fear response to the outbreak produces a sort of totalitarian uh, government that you know that, that gets rebranded as Fedra, um, and also a resistance to that government that is just as totalitarian, just as fascist, just as authoritarian um, as the uh, people that they're fighting against, all based on a, on a on a fear reaction that had, of course, some legitimacy, uh, but we do also very irrational things in response to fear too, very dangerous things in response to fear. You know, I, I think of uh, the scene when Henry has a gun pointed uh, at, at Joel, um, and then uh, when he they finally have their truce, uh, he talks about how scared he is. He's like, "What are you talking about? How scared could you be? What What are you scared for?" He's like, "I've never done anything like this before. Uh, the The scariest thing I've ever done is point an unloaded gun at your head." Um, and how Edelstein, the doctor, was telling. Uh, Henry, that if he's scared, Sam will be scared. That he sees his fear and he goes and, and paints the 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 superhero mask on on his face. And it's all about how we present, uh, right? Right. We present. It's, it's, and go, going back to you know, you quoted uh, Rab Nachman earlier in this episode, um, right? His most famous uh, teaching, I, I would argue, it's this his most famous teaching is. Um, you know, Kol Halalam Kulo Gesher Tsarmaod, that the whole world is a very narrow bridge. Veha Ikar Lo Klal. But the essence of it, of this world we live in, that is that we shall not fear, right? That we live in a very scary world. And it's how we navigate that world. Rabbi Harold Kushner uh, says, Where do you find God? We, we, we expect, you know, that we live in a, a crazy world. Uh, a, a world that we just experienced our own pandemic, and we ask, where is God in this world? And he says that God is in the calm. The world is chaos, but the default is chaos, not calm. And if we expect the default to be calm, we're going to be disappointed a lot. Uh, but if the world is chaos, we look for those moments of calm. But if the default is also chaos, you would expect that we go through a chaotic life in a chaotic world full of fear. And what he is saying is that we cannot fear, right? What Rab Nachman is saying is that we cannot go through the world scared, 
we have to, and I think that's true throughout Jewish history, that it would be very easy to be scared based on the persecution and victimization of Jews, um, the anti-Semitism that we see uh, through, throughout Jewish history. Uh, I think that's certainly true. It would be very easy for somebody like Ellie to be scared, be very easy for somebody uh, like Joel, who I, I don't care how, how gruff he is, that, that he he lost, he saw his daughter be killed and he could not save her fast enough. Um, and how do you move on from that? I can't imagine that. Uh, we, we see that with Henry and Sam. We see that with Kathleen, how she responds to her own fear of her brother dying. Uh, and uh, we, we see that, that fear of Bill not wanting to live a life alone without his beloved. Uh, and uh, the real message of the show is that we move on, we go forward literally and figuratively, we go on this journey and we do so without fear. And the show brilliantly does this because we are fearful as viewers throughout the episode, right? right. We are waiting. When they're walking through the tunnels, I was waiting right. for, for, for a, a clicker or, or some mushroom head zombie to jump out at me. Right. I was like, this show has actually gone through five episodes with very few occurrences of, of zombies. Maybe that's right. just money on, on, on VFX or, or whatever, but it's brilliant. You see it at the beginning. You see it a little bit in episode two. You see it uh, not at all in episode three, not at all in episode four, and only at the end of episode five. Right. You know, I think that I think that that's right. I think it is intentional. I mean, it may be a budgetary decision, too, but I think it's intentional to uh, to all those WB discovery the, budget cuts to you know, to, to play with the audience's expectations. Right. So we're conditioned to expect uh, zombies to be jumping out of the dark. Right. And uh, and and initially um, I you know got through maybe the first 10 minutes of the show and turned it off because I thought that that was going to happen. And I had to like take to, you know, Facebook to ask people, you know, uh, just how scary if you've seen it, just how scary is The Last of Us? Because I don't think I can handle it. And and people said, you know, it's not like that. Right. So so they're not at least yet um, looking for those sort of, you know, cheap jump scares um, and, and playing with that idea that like what we you know that that fear is in is in part about our expectations, right? So, um, so we're we're, we're sort of like uh, and fearful in anticipation, um, and not necessarily fearful about the right things. I, I you know, I don't read Torah, uh, and you know those those texts that you brought up as saying don't be afraid because I think that uh, that fear is natural. Um, there are plenty, you know, fear is um, is is a sort of a uh, um, uh, 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 an evolutionary response to threat, right? And fear is uh, fear can protect us, right? So if I'm if I'm not afraid of any, if I'm actually not afraid of anything, right? Um, then I am likely to move through the world in sort of a cavalier way. Um, uh, you know, fear un- causes important humility, right? So, so I, I think, it, and it also, you know, uh, there is a way. It's just in- to interrupt you for a second, Mike, right? Mm-hmm. The the we are told we are supposed to have. Yirat Shemayim, right, right? right, which is uh, yeah. about uh, appreciating the awesomeness of God. But but Yirat is not just about awesome; it's about literally we should fear yeah, God, right, right? Because God is because God is powerful, and and I think about that also as you know, God is a force beyond our control, uh, and so that you know, we should in some ways be afraid of forces beyond our control, um, and be mindful of how we walk in the world um, it, uh, because of of that fear, or at least that acknowledgement, um, you know, and that I think goes to the conversation we we're having before about being our authentic selves and whatever, because, because of the recognition that, you know, uh, death could come for all of us and we don't know when, but, um, here's what, here's what I say. I mean, the Torah says, uh, you know, over and over, especially in the book of Deuteronomy, Altira, right? It's a commandment repeated in, uh, in, in the book of Deuteronomy and then the book of Joshua, do not be afraid. Um, and uh, Parker Palmer, a great, you know, contemporary um, uh, spiritual teacher, uh, uh, talks about, he kind of recontextualizes that verse or reinterprets that verse, not saying don't be afraid. In other words, like don't, you know, condition yourself not to have that natural 
um, uh, fear that that is part of our our psyche and a natural response to the world. Saying that that's impossible. The Bible's not saying that we that we should be you know supernatural beings that have no fear. He's he's so he interprets it as al tira is um, do not become your fear, right? Do not let your fear. Uh, dictate your direction, right? Be be sort of like, be in control of your fear. Don't let it control you. So be mindful of when you're afraid, but interrogate it, right? Say, is this a legitimate fear? Is my response to this fear the right response, right? So who's in control of who? Are you in control of your fear? Is your fear in control of you? Don't, sure. become, don't become your fear. And I think that the Torah specifically places that in, uh, in Deuteronomy and in, in Joshua, because these are the books where the children of Israel are at the cusp of entering the promised land. Uh, they are uh, going to, you know, establish their own society. And the Torah is warning, don't establish a society that is rooted in and governed by fear, because that will make you, uh, uh, that will make you brutal to each other and to others. Um, fear is what made Pharaoh uh, uh, oppressed the Israelites, right? The fear and that he imparted to the other Egyptians, right? The fear of the Israelites, you know, becoming too numerous and rising up, right? The fear produced an oppressive response. Uh, the the great uh, civil rights theologian Howard Thurman uh, writes this in in his book, you know, Jesus and the Disinherited. Uh, he has a whole chapter about fear uh, being one of the both the root causes of uh, systemic racial oppression um, and the outcomes of systemic racial oppression. And he says that, that the only way to overcome um, that kind of, uh, uh, that kind of uh, um, phenomenon um, is, uh, is, is, with, is with faith and with love. Uh, but you have to at least recognize first that fear um, is present and is driving the oppression and it is possible for the oppressed to uh to to be overcome by that fear and for themselves to become oppressors because of it arguably there are those who argue and sometimes depending on the circumstance um i i, I find myself to be one of them that that's precisely um a, a, a dynamic that comes up in the modern state of israel i think that there are legitimate fears that drove the uh the the movement to establish the modern state of israel and legitimate fears that drive some of the policy decisions of the modern state of israel but sometimes those fears um uh, uh, uh seem to compel uh uh policymakers in israel and israeli citizens to um to 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 respond in 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 fascism uh, in, in brutal or oppressive ways yeah. um yeah. yeah and i think that that is what is most fascinating about what we see with like kathleen and, and uh kansas city right that the revolution uh becomes just as bad as Fedra itself. Um, the, the show, by, by the way, I just want to highlight um, co-creator uh, Craig Mazin. Um, and he actually, uh, when he created this character of Kathleen, uh, the leader of the Kansas City Revolution movement. Um, Are they fireflies? Uh, I don't know if they, they were fireflies there itself. They, they could have mm -hmm. been. Um, it's it's not clear, but he compared. He was quoted in comparing the character uh, of Kathleen um, to um, I'm going to mispronounce this, but but to the character from A Tale of Two Cities, Madame Defarge, mm -hmm. um, who's a revolutionary who becomes a terrorist due to the cruel circumstances, which also allows the audience to empathize with her. Well, um, in fact, you know, one of one of uh, one of the first. So uh, 9-11 was my uh, first week of college in New York City uh, from right. Atlanta and, and uh, was born and raised there, went to New York for college. The first or second week of college uh, was was 9-11. And so one of the first assignments that I had um, in my freshman composition class uh, was to take a, an English word um, and to do like a study of the etymology of it. And, uh, and and so because it was very present in the in the conversation, I chose the word terrorism. And what I discovered is that the word terrorism um, in, in its kind of political sense um, was first used 
um, after the French Revolution, uh, during what came to be known as the Reign of Terror, um, which oh. was uh, which was uh, um, the, the the French revolutionaries established a government um, that was in, thoroughly tyrannical. Um, you know, the, the 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 guillotine was invented uh, to punish the enemies of the French Revolution. Uh, 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 Robespierre is the sort of paradigma paradigmatic figure. That's who I thought you were going to say uh, that Kathleen is kind of based on. Um, but it's you know, one doesn't need to look far uh, throughout history to find that it's one of the um, you know uh, extraordinary things about the American Revolution um, is that the uh, that the uh, leaders of the American Revolution um, didn't create their own. Uh, reign of terror here, aside from the enslavement of, of African Americans, um, uh, that but that was sort of related to and not related to the American Revolution itself. Um, but uh, but but they didn't, uh, um, you know, sort of uh, respond uh, in in quite the same way. Yeah, I actually I may I walk I that back I a little bit because maybe maybe enough. I'm wrong about the American Revolution. Um, yeah, I, I don't know, like how did they respond, right, to those who 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 were um, supporters of England, right, and, and the king, right? Because it's you. I, I think they they responded pretty aggressively and and, and um, violently, because um, because whenever there's a revolution, right, whenever there's a war, um, you have to choose sides. Right. right. And, it's, it's, and it certainly is, you know, as I was saying it, I was like, well, you know, uh, that uh, they, they, they didn't free their, their, their enslaved peoples. Right. And part of that is a, was a fear response to, you know, worrying that the enslaved peoples would, you know, launch their own rebellion against the, against the uh, uh, slave, against the slave, the enslavers uh, and, uh, and the American revolutionaries and those who came in the decades after them certainly uh, exercised a fear response uh, against the Native Americans uh, in, in essentially perpetrating a genocide against them. And then it happens, you know, later after the Civil War, the the, the response to um, uh, uh, following the Civil War uh, was was in a sense a fear response uh, to to not have you know another civil war. Um, and so to be you know as Abraham uh, Lincoln said, you know, with with uh, with malice toward none and uh, with gen uh, uh, with malice toward none. And generosity to all. I'm butchering. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm just hearing Nicholas Cage quote that from uh, National Treasure. Uh, I see. So you know, so that is also in a way of a fear response that arguably had uh, really significant consequences in American history that we are still dealing with, right? So that's fear response that doesn't produce you know more uh, violence. Um, or was designed to uh, avoid more violence, but actually uh, 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 leads to, you know, an ongoing fight in this country over, uh, you know, that we're, we're essentially still fighting the Civil War because of uh, the, the failure of, of Lincoln and then uh, Andrew Johnson after him um, to really um, uh, uh, snuff out the remnants of, um, of, of you know, confederate uh um of the confederate you know insurrectionist mentality um mike will you be disappointed if uh there is no cure if if ellie uh is not the uh does not have the uh remedy to this 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 vi zombie virus uh, and the um, show uh concludes whether the season or uh after many seasons, the show in and of itself concludes with this being the reality in the world that they live in. Because to me, the, the essence of, of that as, as a backdrop is, is hope. Uh, Rabbi Yitz Greenberg uh, said that the greatest gift the Jewish people have given the world is the gift of hope, right? Mm -hmm. That after 400 years of enslavement, God finally freed us. Uh, and uh, right, that idea that there's always this this glimmer of light that no matter how bad things are right now, they can still get better. Mm. Uh, and if that hope does not exist in this world, it's a difficult world to live in. But because Ellie may be that hope that that uh, allows us to to live in this world. Yeah, you know, I I don't know uh, if I'd be disappointed. I think it just kind of depends on where they take it. Um, I I think that you know uh, is the hope that 
Ellie will provide a cure and the world will go back to the way it was before. Right. I think that that's like, you know, what, what often we were hearing in the pandemic is we just, we want to, we, we want things to return to normal. And, uh, and, and, um, and a lot of folks pointed out that, you know, pre the pre pandemic normal wasn't so great. Right. So I'm not so sure that what and, and I think that we actually ended up with that kind of cheap grace uh, of the pandemic because we we had a vaccine very quickly, especially, you know, in, in comparison to how vaccines have developed in, in human history. Um, and things have more or less sort of shifted back to the pre-pandemic normal for a lot of folks um, without really uh, uh, taking stock. Good of the and bad. Right. And, and without really taking stock of the ways in which, you know, things were broken before the pandemic and working to fix those. So, uh, you know, on some level, like I hope that Ellie isn't the cure, uh, because what people need to figure out is how to actually make a a, 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 a good society, um, given the situation that they have right now, um, or or a better version of what existed pre outbreak. Um so I don't know. I, I, I'm certain that it's not going to be as simple as Ellie's blood has the cure. We already see that that's not true in, in episode five. So it's not going to be simple. I'm I'm also not certain that Ellie's going to make it to the end of the series anyway, because I think that both Fedra and the revolutionaries, the Fireflies, um, they benefit from the status quo. Um, and I'm not sure that they want uh, a cure necessarily. Interesting. So for those who have played the video game, no spoilers. To let us know, uh, you know, the, the outcome and who knows if the show will follow the trajectory of the video game itself. Um, uh, that, that's, a, that's a really, really good point um, that uh, those who rise to power uh, during uh, times of, of grief um, don't necessarily want things to go back to how, how they were. Uh, I do appreciate uh, that she sees beauty in simple things right? That she had never been in a car before. And she's like, this is, this is awesome. This is amazing. And how the pandemic really allowed us to refocus mm. on uh, finding blessings in the everyday, those things that we take for granted. And as we go back to a, a world, in many ways, a pre-pandemic world, I hope that we don't lose sight of those everyday blessings and don't start to take those for granted again. Amen. I think that that's a good thought to end with. Obviously, there's a lot to say about this show. Maybe we'll have opportunity to talk about it again, but we want to hear your thoughts, of course. Uh, so let us know what you think about The Last of Us. Uh, and, uh, and and as always, we hope that you'll smash that subscribe button, share the podcast with others, uh, let other people into the conversation as well. Uh, until next time, I'm Rabbi Michael Knopf. I am Rabbi Jesse Olitsky. Take care, everyone. <laughs>